Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. I don't think there's any reason to like treat certain people with kid gloves just because they're in political positions. If you perceive that as political, then that's on you. I got fired basically 24 hours before I would have retired. Everything he's just described is exactly the opposite of how things work. Incredibly powerful machine. It smells very badly. Ridiculous, that's not who I am. We define domestic terrorism in the federal law, but we do not have a law against it. I think the work that the FBI does every day is majestic and righteous. We're in for a fast-moving, broad-ranging discussion with this episode's guest. Andrew McCabe served as a career FBI special agent for over 20 years. While working as the FBI's deputy director, he became the acting director of the FBI when Donald Trump fired Director James Comey. Attorney General Jeff Sessions then terminated McCabe on March 16, 2018, just 26 hours before McCabe's scheduled retirement. On this episode... Andy, now a CNN contributor, speaks freely and candidly about his career, his termination, and his successful settlement with the Department of Justice that restored his pension, his benefits, and just maybe his faith in justice. Andy, thanks for being with us for this episode. Oh, thank you for having me, Frank. Yep. As we as we move beyond the Bureau uh, in this uh, season of the Bureau podcast, I'm thrilled to have somebody who is really now uh, straddling a couple of worlds. One, of course, the world of former uh, FBI agent and executive, and now, of course, uh, the the media role that both of us uh, find ourselves in on on competing networks, but on we're, on any given day, we're not competing. I think we're we have similar goals, and they think they have to they have something to do with preserving national security and democracy. I think that's right. Yeah, and I think we're probably on any given day talking about the same subjects on different. Oh channels, yeah, and, and just for what it's worth, I I flip around, and and if you're on, I'm listening because I want to. I I will shamelessly take ideas uh, from uh, from. Yeah, as do yeah. I. So yeah. it's, it's fair game. Well, thanks for thanks for being with us. You know, I found in our previous two seasons that our listeners just are uh, enthralled with the personal stories of of our guests, uh, particularly with FBI backgrounds, because, you know, the average citizen gets their image of uh, an FBI employee from either the media, uh, movies, TV, maybe books, and and maybe a, a blip on the evening news of someone in a, at a crime scene in a raid jacket. But in terms of putting the human face on people who have served the nation in the FBI for as long as you have. How about sharing with us your personal journey, where you come from, where you grew up, how you found yourself uh, becoming an FBI agent? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to share it. Um, When I think about friends of ours and colleagues that we worked with in the Bureau, I feel like I had a little bit of a different draw to the Bureau uh, as a young person. I wasn't really focused as as a kid on being an FBI agent. You know, I didn't watch the FBI movies and things on TVs and think... I think that's what I wanted to do. I grew up in, in New York. I was born in New York and, and lived there as a young child and then moved to Jacksonville, Florida when I was about eight years old. So I had this very, very different uh, kind of a Northeastern and a Southeastern experience growing up. Anyway, found myself, went to Duke University, graduated from Duke and went to law school at Washington University in St. Louis. And it was really at WashU where only the criminal law related classes were really compelling and interesting to me. You know, I wasn't, I didn't care much about torts and, uh, and civil process and stuff like that. It was all about constitutional law and, and criminal law and criminal process really drew me in. 
I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. And so in the summer between my second and third years in law school, instead of going to a law firm, I, I tried to become a DOJ honors intern. I put in for the program and it was, I was soundly rejected. And so I thought, well, if you won't let me come and be an honors intern, then I'm just going to show up and work for free. So I went to DC and I got a volunteer internship in the DOJ criminal division in the uh, fraud section. And so I spent that summer uh, working on these big fraud cases that the Washington prosecutors were working on. And some of them were political corruption related. One of them was um, an investigation around campaign finance issues with a senator from the Northeast. And I spent the whole summer reading FD302s, right? So those, of course, the reports that FBI agents write after they complete an interview with a victim or a witness or a subject of a case, they come back and they write it up on a 302. And so I read, you know, dozens and dozens of these 302s and I became obsessed with the idea that these FBI agents got to interact with everyone and have these incredibly personal, revealing conversations with corporate CEOs and criminals and everyone in between. And so I came back to my third year in law school with this deep interest in becoming an FBI agent. Of course, they were under a hiring freeze when I graduated. And so I went to work in a, in a law firm in Camden, New Jersey, and kind of waited and bided my time until the Bureau opened up the application process again. They ultimately did that. I put in an application right away. It took about two years to get through the process. And in 1996, I got my invitation to that very, very terse letter that we all get saying that you've been scheduled for a class at Quantico. You know, it seemed much more celebratory from me, from my perspective. But, you know, of course, the FBI is always just very spare in their communications. And so, yeah, I packed up my stuff on a very hot day in, in July of 1996 and drove down to Quantico and, and started the adventure of a lifetime. Indeed it is. It's a wild ride. And I, you know, we, we share some similarities, but there, there's this takeaway, a similarity being uh, the internship. And I think, you know, not the same internship. I, I interned at FBI headquarters while I was in law school, but I, I always tell young people interested in a career in public service, you know, you got to get that internship, get the internship. It, <laughs> it, sure. it exposes you to the entire agency. And, and in, in your case specifically exposed you to the work of the FBI while you were at DOJ. And then the message being, hey, you don't have to know what you want to do when you're 10 years old. You, you may right. have, you start out in one direction and, and go in another. And another takeaway from your, your story that I get is just tenacity. Like, don't give up. It takes a long time. And um, it really does, uh, you know, and, yeah. and there are many, many points along the path where, you know, the people around me thought it was just a crazy idea. It wasn't like what I had ever thought I would do. But I guess what I would say is that we find that thing that fascinates you, that you think you're going to love, that you really just want to immerse yourself in, do that. No matter what it is, no matter what everyone else is telling you to do or whether that thing maybe doesn't pay as much money as the things you thought yeah. you were going to do or doesn't have the same whatever, I don't know, status or, or, or anything like that. Do the thing that you love, the thing that compels you, and you will be rewarded for it. It is the thing that you will do the best, right? You'll, have, you'll experience the most success and and satisfaction really from what you do by finding that thing you love. Yeah. I, I tell a story, you know, on this whole thing about, Hey, that's crazy idea, or you're not going to get paid. Well, I, I tell the story of my law school classmates, uh, poking fun at me. Like you're going to go play cops and robbers. That's right. and yeah. How are you, how are you going to live on a government salary? And then within a couple of years, many of those classmates were calling me at the FBI saying they couldn't handle the lack of integrity um, or, you know, the, 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 the battle for partnership uh, at a law firm. That's and right. Yeah. How do I, you know, please tell me how I apply to the FBI. So yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. Indeed. Great decision. So Andy, now you get on board, you're at the Academy and, and uh, there's a day at the Academy, of course, when we all get our orders <laughs> to our field office and uh, what, when you opened that envelope up, what did it say? You know, it was it was pretty uneventful for me because my wife was just finishing her medical residency in Philadelphia, and she decided that she wanted to take a then pursue a fellowship at a hospital in New York. 
And of course, you know, if you asked for the New York field office in Quantico, you got it right. Yeah. They sent maybe a dozen people from every class uh, to New York, some of whom wanted it and many <laughs> wanted anything except New York. So I, I asked for New York and got it. And I was uh, very happy with that. Although about a day or so later, my wife said, I've decided not to do the fellowship. Can we go someplace else? Oh, I was like, yeah. no, no, no. Oh. We're going to New York now. Oh, so you actually gave her her assignment. Did yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> in a weird way, in a yeah. very strange way. Um, the, the Bureau decided for the both of us. But great, great experience. I'll never, ever regret it. It's There's nothing quite like the New York office. It is the biggest, the most productive, the most disorganized, the most chaotic, the most frenetic, the most over and above. And it's a wild place to work. I used to think, you know, in New York, you're limited really only by your own energy level and enthusiasm. Like you can essentially do anything you want there. And, and sure enough, as a, as a very young case agent, I managed to stumble my way into a big case that um, really kind of set the path for me for the rest of my career. Tell us, tell us about that. Sure. So I was one of the young, two youngest agents on, on my squad. I was on the Russian Organized Crime Task Force uh, in the New York City field office. And in the office early one morning, which just shows how green I was, because nobody on my squad even showed up until about 10, because we were typically out on the street at night. Um, so I'm sitting there around probably 8, 8.30 in the morning, the phone rings, I pick it up which is always a strange experience as a new agent, right? Uh, McCabe, FBI, you hear yourself saying that, you know, kind of want to laugh. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a guy who owned a furniture store in Brooklyn. And he was being, uh, it turns out he was being extorted by a, uh, a another person that he knew, a person who he had formerly been a, a business partner with. And he was just so incensed and insulted and uh, humiliated by this that he called the FBI and he said, he said to me in a very heavy Russian accent, he said, I am being racketeered. Mm. And I thought, well, hey, you call the right place for the racketeer, <laughs> for the racketeer right. people. Um, and so very quickly, my partner and I went out to Brooklyn uh, that afternoon and interviewed him and it convinced him to attend a meeting where this crew, this Russian organized crime crew, was going to lay out their extortion scheme to a whole bunch of prospective victims. And so we convinced him to attend that meeting wearing a, a wire, a recording device. And so it was an opportunity to actually to capture evidence of an extortion at its very inception, to listen to the head of this gang kind of lay out what the payments would be and what the penalty would be for not paying. And that's exactly how it happened. Um, and so that got us off the ground to a case that went on for months into this crew. They were, you know, they were importing firearms from out of state, selling them to using them and selling them to other crews. They were selling stolen vehicles. They were conducting kidnappings in order to collect debts from different people. Uh, it was just a, a crime wave committed by about six or six or eight guys in Brooklyn during that uh, fall. So it was a great case. I'm, I'm glad you shared that for uh, a couple of reasons. One, one is I think there's this perception among uh, street agents, as we call them in the FBI, that, uh, boy, those those executives at headquarters, they don't <laughs> they they never worked a case. They don't know. And the reality is, you know, a Andy, uh, me, uh, we we did our time in the field. Yeah. We worked, yeah, we worked cases, and um, you know, I think there, this t there tends to be this kind of attitude of headquarters doesn't doesn't know what it's doing, which is often may often be the case. But it's not that <laughs> for it's not that we didn't try to work cases and did you know, and did work cases. It's pretty typical. Every yeah. every organization I think yeah. struggles with this. There's the whole field versus versus headquarters dynamic, and I I, I understand that. But you, but you're yeah. absolutely right, and. I mean, I spent the first half of my career, first 10 years of my 20 plus year career in New York, working criminal cases and doing restaurant organized crime. And I will say that learning how to build these broad enterprise cases to bring RICO indictments, to collect all kinds of different evidence, to do them historically with cooperators or proactively with informants and cooperators who are wearing recording equipment, that's how I learned the skills that I later used in national security cases. I learned how to work big, complicated cases. I learned how to work informants and cooperators against targets by doing criminal cases. And so when I found myself at headquarters working terrorism and managing terrorism cases, 
you know, the names were different and the plots were different, but the dynamics of criminal organizations are very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, uh, little did you know, as a, a first office agent that the Russians would play prominently again yeah. in your career. Uh, I, would, I would never towards, get rid of them. I did no, not know yeah, that. The the, they're there. They're there forever. Um, get it, get us to the point where you are now suddenly finding yourself working terrorism. How does that happen? Sure. So of course I was in New York for nine 11 and, and worked uh, the nine 11 case as everybody did in New York for months and months. But then I ultimately returned to doing my Russian OC work. I ended up as the stationary supervisor of that squad in 2003, which was great because I was just basically working with my, you know, my best friends who I had been working with for, you know, seven years or so before that. So in 2006, uh, at the time, you will recall, Frank, there was a, a rule that you could be a stationary supervisor for only a few years, and then you had to go to headquarters. Um, so my children we used, to, were, we used to call that up or out. That's you, right. either, you either progressed in management or you got <laughs> you out of got management. Out. Yeah. So I, I, it was an opportune time to do it because my kids were young. And I actually had this plan that I would go to headquarters and then maybe go out and work overseas as we got. That never happened. But so in 2006, I went down to headquarters and I, and having worked criminal work for 10 years, I wanted to try terrorism because I felt like, you know, I had learned everything I was going to learn about criminal work, you know, work in the streets in New York. And so it was time for me to do something different. And I, I picked the the place where I thought I would be the most operationally engaged, which at that time was International Terrorism Operations Section 1, ITOS, otherwise known as the Meat Grinder, uh, a really brutal place to work uh, because of the times and the tension and the stress around those cases. And I was like, you know what? No place better than that to jump right in and, and figure this out. And so I went down as a unit chief and I was overseeing this unit that managed the overseas cases. So FBI cases against terrorists who happen to be overseas, right? So we still investigate people, not just in the United States, but people around the world for violating US law. And that's what we did in this unit. And within about a month, again, dumb luck, my unit became responsible for the 2006 airliner plot so this was the case in which these uh, Al-Qaeda-affiliated, inspired uh, young men in London tried to take down U.S.-bound airlines with explosives. Uh, we called it Operation Overt. So that was the case that in the summer of 2006, basically shut down the airports around the world and turned us into, you know, in many ways, the, the, the world we are now, where you can't bring liquids onto a plane and you have to be assiduously checked and take so this is this now. is all your fault then the fact that we, yeah, yeah i have to take much. my i have to take my shoes off yeah pretty pretty much um yeah so that was and again you know it's, it's getting dropped into a massive um investigation i think in the first couple of weeks of that case we opened over 250 sub investigations of individuals in the united states so it's just a huge huge uh endeavor and i found myself on the hot seat briefing director Mueller twice a day you know every day at 6 a.m and 6 p.m so that really gave me my baptism by fire to that whole process. I think I think that uh, there's many folks who can tell the story of their cases, their their role, finding putting them in front of Mueller on a regular basis, and that turning into Mueller trusting your abilities. Um, yeah. at, at least you know you're a known quantity, and when he had to reach out and promote people or get somebody he could trust in a position of increasing authority, he would tap those people. And it that's sounds like right. that's what happened there. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. So so you rise up the ranks within the counterterrorism division. That's right. And do I have it right that you, at some point, are named uh, assistant director for counterterrorism, the head of counterterrorism? Yeah, so that was in, I want to say 2011, if I have my dates right. Um, and so I was just... And I, honestly, to this day, I think of it as like maybe the best job I ever had in the Bureau. I mean, case agent is the best job in the Bureau, bar none. Uh, but in terms of kind of leadership roles, uh, there was nothing quite like running the counterterrorism division. It kind of was the place that I thought of as home, at least at headquarters, because I had started there. Right. And it's just such an enormous, incredibly powerful machine that accomplishes amazing things. Like the people who work in that division are just so dedicated and 
so committed to the mission that there's almost no request that's beyond what they're capable of. And so you really felt like you were at the head of this incredibly powerful, potent, dedicated machine that was trying to find the bad guys, you know, and, and save people's lives. That's That's been part of the mission of this podcast is simply to, to let people know what's going on just beneath the surface, that people, yeah. that men and women, men and women come to work every single day, simply trying to protect America. There's a, an old, uh, long retired FBI executive, Bear Bryant, uh, who mm-hmm. was my assistant director in the counterintelligence division, who had a sign up in his office that said simply, America is at peace because the FBI is at war. And the, yeah, you know, the, the men and women of the, the counterterrorism division exemplify that. It, it is an everyday battle. It really is. And it's not just agents. It is equally analysts and um, staff operations specialists and all kinds of roles at every different level. And, you know, we worked in a building in Northern Virginia, which I won't identify because I'm not sure if I should. And it was just every day, seven days a week, people were there all weekend, every weekend, especially something you know, if a new case had opened up, which they typically do like on Friday nights, right? Just as you're trying to go home. It's always um, a Friday night. Always, always Friday night. You know, and they're like all of a sudden, you're just like, okay, we need like FISA coverage by tomorrow or something. And, you know, the whole staff is in all day, Saturday, all night, Saturday night. It didn't matter. You never had to ask people to come in and work, actually. They just did it. They knew you know, it was so important and there was absolutely no margin for error. And this is not to say that we always got everything right. We didn't, you know, we said it's an organization of human beings and, you know, you make mistakes and sometimes you get better at things as you, as you go along, not just as a person, but as an organization, but boy, you cannot fault the dedication of those people and their commitment to trying to protect America. It's remarkable. Hey, let's break here for me to tell you about a supplement I've been using personally for about a year. I was looking for faster recovery from tougher workouts, especially since I'm not getting any younger. What I found on my own was True Niogen. True Niogen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. With 13 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, True Niogen is a supplement that's clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. Since taking True Niogen, I have more resiliency, and it helps my muscles recover after workouts. Whether you're an athlete, busy parent, or busy grandparent, True Niogen can be part of a lifestyle of healthy aging. Add more vitality to your life today with True Niogen. Right now, new customers can save 10% on their first purchase by going to trueniogen.com frank and use code frank. That's trueniogen.com frank, code frank, to save 10% on your first purchase True Niagen, that's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash Frank, code Frank. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You spend time in the field at Washington field office. Uh, yes. You know, I, I don't want to use the phrase checking the boxes, but you had, you played the roles that people need to play as they expose themselves to increasing responsibilities. And, but nonetheless, um, whether it was the, the siren call of headquarters or the phone call from Mueller, you find yourself, <laughs> you find you. yourself back at the Hoover building. And, um, and now well, look, eventually you become the deputy director of the FBI. So crazy. So yeah. crazy. I mean, I would get I would get phone calls from some of my friends in New York, like they're like, I can't believe this, you know. And I'm like, I can't believe it either. None of us yeah. saw this coming. 
But yeah, that was, let's see. So this is like 20, the end of 2015, I am living large. I'm running the Washington field office as assistant director in charge. Great office, great people. You don't need to go anywhere from there. Right. And I would have, I should have <laughs> stayed right where I was. Yeah. Um, and I got a call from Mark Giuliano, who was the deputy at the time. And, you know, Mark had, was really instrumental in getting, I had been the executive assistant director uh, for national security before I was ADIC at WFO, which is kind of an odd way to do that. And director Comey had already talked to me about potentially, you know, serving as deputy after Mark left. And Mark was really insistent that I go back and get another year in the field before being deputy. And I am eternally grateful to him for that. And so I went over to, I went to WFO and then of course, you know, the phone rings and it's Mark and he's like, okay, it's time for you to come back. The number three, who was uh, Kevin Perkins at the time was moving out. And Mark said, I want you to come back. I think it was October of 2015 and work as the number three in that administrative role. And that'll give us a couple months to overlap. And then he was planning on leaving in February, which he did. And when he left, I became the deputy. So that's right, how that worked right. out. So I want to, before we get to um, the, the well-known issues um, that that uh, happen as as you're the deputy, let's talk about, you. you are uniquely positioned as the former head of the Washington field office, former head of counterterrorism. Let's talk about January 6th and the Capitol. Let's talk about what... What do you think was going on, just based on your experience and knowledge, what was going on inside the FBI at the time? We're increasingly exposed, Andy, as you know, to reports of, you know, the Norfolk field office memo or, you know, an email to the JTTF at, at Washington Field. What was going on? What didn't go on? What's your take on yeah. So, you know, Frank, even from the very beginning um, just from the outset, I can tell you from my experience serving as ADIC and also years earlier as an ASAC at WFO, where as ASAC, I over I oversaw all of the terrorism preparation, counterterrorism preparation for the inauguration for President Obama's first inauguration. So it was a massive, uh, what we call a national security special event in NSSE. So it's very fam- I'm very familiar with that process. And the lead, in the lead up to January 6th, I couldn't believe that they didn't consider and request that the January 6th events be considered an NSSE because the community, the law enforcement and intelligence community in Washington, D.C. is very complicated. It's unlike any other city because you have all these big federal agencies in the same place, in addition to local agencies that are very capable, but they all work very well together because they do it all the time. There are NSSEs in Washington all the time, right? Every inauguration, every 4th of July, every joint session of Congress ends up being an NSSE. And once you put that machine in motion, all the pieces know how to work together, how much of the National Guard is going to back up whatever organization and under what situations you would call them in and how quickly they could get there. All that stuff is worked out. And so the fact that they didn't do that for January 6th, to me, raises some very important questions about how were they thinking about January 6th before January 6th? What were they expecting to happen? Who were they expecting to actually show up? What groups, what organizations, what have you, were they concerned might cause some sort of a problem? Again, my opinion, worth what you paid for it, but from my perspective, they made some terribly inaccurate decisions and assessments uh, around that process. And had they gone the NSSE route and had a a robust interagency cooperative uh, collaborative plan in place, I think we've been in a much better position to respond to the horrific events that we all saw. So that's really, that's the fundamental mistake, I think. Yeah, we're of one mind on on that. Uh, clearly, and I'm sensitive to the fact that we can Monday morning quarterback and it's sure. easy, for, easy yep. for us to sit back and go, oh, that should yep. have been a national security special event. Well, right. you know, it's it's it could have been, it should have been if indeed they were paying attention um, and looking at the intel through the correct lens. That's um, that's the key question right yeah, there. Yeah, and you know, I think we've both talked on, on TV about the inability, seeming inability to see ourselves as a threat 
Um, And it's particularly difficult if those people flocking to D.C. that you're getting wind of are all in favor of the current president. And so it's hard hard to see that. But there's a a, national security special event thing, which, as you correctly point out, we do it every year for for fireworks at the 4th of July on the mall. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the sign off on that, while it's multi-agency, the the lead agency of a national security special event becomes the Secret Service, does it not? So it's essentially, it's FEMA that you put the request into and FEMA designates whether or not the event is considered an NSSC. And once it, once that designation has been given, then there's like a lead federal official and all these other established roles fall into place. And uh, the Secret Service is in the lead for a couple of important things. Anything that has to do with protection of the president, obviously that they own that. So in, term, in, in the case of an inauguration, that's like, blocking off streets and and checking the crowds that are allowed to watch the parade down Pennsylvania and all that kind of stuff. But they also run the kind of highest level uh, joint operations center. And everyone has a delegation that works out of that joint operations, uh, that, that Secret Service Joint Operations Center uh, for the day. And that obviously puts them in a very important position to facilitate communication and, and cooperation. And then there's all kinds of other roles that have to be f- fulfilled, like, you know, bomb disposal units. And, um, you know, the Bureau typically has all of the counterterrorist angles of it. So we do, you know, the CT intelligence and all that stuff. So uh, it's a very complicated process, but again, one that's uh, pretty well practiced. Yeah, I, ra- I raised the Secret Service issue because indeed, if they had to sign off on on such a thing, may- maybe that would have not gone well uh, with it's regard possible. to their, you know, their proximity to the president or not. You know, which brings us, Frank, to the investigation, right? This is why I think it is just of such importance that we peel this thing back and understand like, was that request ever made? And if it was, who did it go to? And and what what did they, you know, obviously if they got a request, they didn't decide to make it one. Why is that? What, what was their reasoning and their logic? I think you say the same thing for the FBI. What intelligence did they did they collect prior to January 6th? What did they think about that intelligence? What assumptions or uh, analytical judgments did they make based on the intelligence they had? Did they collect the right intelligence? Are there informants in the right places? We will not know the answers to any of these questions unless there's a legitimate, professional, not a political investigation, but a professional deep investigation that the agencies are forced to cooperate with. Yep. We did it for 9-11 and a commission, and and we should be doing it now. And this is why the select committee needs to to happen and needs to continue (laughs) if indeed the the control of the House uh, turns over in, in the midterms. But- you know, I, I my understanding is not even in what we call the in the FBI what we called an initial assessment. Not even that preliminary right. initial assessment was open, despite um, the available intelligence. So that raises the question, Andy, of whether the rules of the road, the operating guidelines for the FBI domestically, need to be reevaluated. Are there things the FBI is simply constrained from doing domestically against U.S. persons? that they could easily do if you change the threat to international terrorism and ISIS or Al-Qaeda? You know, it gets to our age-old kind of conundrum about international terrorism or what we call IT versus domestic terrorism, DT. Uh, Important to point out to your listeners, international terrorism is everything and everyone who is a member of or motivated by or aspires to become a member of an international terrorist organization like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. So even if you're here in the United States, if you're plotting a terrorist act because you're you're a follower of Al-Qaeda, we consider you to be an international terrorist, even though you're here. Domestic terrorism, very different. Those are domestic groups that are engaged in promoting or uh, executing violent acts, which are crimes. Uh, in pursuit of some sort of a political goal or in an effort to change, you know, change the policy of government, that sort of thing. Domestic terrorism has worked in the FBI exclusively on unclassified kind of criminal basis, right? You, Unless you know that a group is engaged in something that would constitute a crime, then you can't investigate them because we don't investigate people for political speech or First Amendment protected speech. It's different on the IT side because it is against the law to belong to a designated terrorist group. So you can be, you know, it's much easier to start an investigation. So, yes, the Bureau has some hurdles 
to investigate individuals here in this country who are pursuing political goals, right? And that's a good thing. We don't want to we don't want to get rid of those protections by any stretch. However, the facts are that the places that that communication takes place now are on social media and in things that are available through open source reporting and sources and things like that. This is where people go to plan violent acts and to plan an insurrection, as we now know. And so I do think it's time for the Bureau to rethink what sort of information they allow their agents and analysts to access when they're trying to conduct a threat assessment to determine if there's a threat to national security posed by, you know, potentially potential domestic terrorist groups out there. Doesn't seem to be a clear understanding even within the Bureau prior to January 6th, what are they allowed to look at? And once they see, let's say, a post online or in a, in a Facebook group or something like that, can they collect it and record it, maintain it in Bureau files? These are all very important kind of maybe boring legal questions, but it gets to this issue of like, what are we going to let our analysts and our agents see to determine whether or not a threat exists? And yeah, I think they need to relook at that. I think there's something that doesn't sit well with many Americans, uh, including me, that we could sit back at home as civilians and and look at posts on Parler or Telegram or, or mm-hmm. Twitter and realize people are planning something really bad and moving toward Washington, D.C., yet you know, the, the Bureau seemingly could not get in there or certainly couldn't put an undercover in there simply for the, in these chat rooms, simply to monitor speech. I think they can actually, I think they didn't, I think for whatever reason, internally, they made the decision not to push those envelopes and not to um, engage in that sort of more provocative collection. I think the legal authority to do that is there. I think you can do that sort of collection in what we call threat assessments, not investigate this particular person, but uh, it's a type of investigation that the Bureau can open simply to collect relevant intelligence uh, just to understand what the threat picture is. I think what the Bureau needs to do is recalibrate internally how they are, you know, are they keeping the horses back and do they need to let them run a little bit? And clearly, look, they missed this one. The number one priority of the FBI is to prevent an act of terrorism in the United States. And an act of terrorism happened on January 6th. So that's right. period, you failed. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the director himself, uh, Chris Ray, has said on the Hill that, that January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism, which, right. gets, which gets me to another topic that I, I know we won't dwell on, but uh, I'm on my soapbox here. We, you know, we see almost now 700 arrests for January 6th participants. And of course, nobody has been arrested for domestic terrorism because we do not have a domestic terrorism law. We define domestic terrorism in the federal law, but we do not have a law yes. against it. Do you yes. have any any thoughts on that? Don't get me started, <laughs> okay. Frank. Right. Oh my All God! Right. I mean, okay. Yeah, right. I'm with yeah. you. I, okay. And I know, I yeah. know that the there's a there's a good debate over this. There are there are people with good judgment and an outstanding knowledge of the law who see it the other way. I get that. I just disagree with them. Yeah. Yeah. The time has come. I mean, look. Yeah. We need, this should be illegal. It should be illegal to right, commit right. an act of domestic terrorism in the United States. I mean, it's just, we have to be careful about how we define oh, it. Oh yeah. And I, and I, I fall be- short. I'm an advocate for the, for a domestic terrorism law. I, I fall short at the point where people say, well, we should be designating domestic terrorism groups because I know yeah. that if we had a president like the last one who famously tweeted one day, I hereby declare Antifa a domestic terrorism organization, right. which right. when we have no mechanism to do that, no. um, that would be abused horribly. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That yeah. is a bridge too far. I don't yeah. know that you could possibly do that in a way that passes constitutional muster, yeah. but you could, you could make it an offense to commit a violent crime in an act of domestic terrorism. And right now it's not the case. And so our federal investigators, our FBI agents and, you know, um, everybody else, they lack that key, that key authority. And so many of the domestic terrorism cases that we have, we end up having to take to state state courts, which is unbelievable. Know, just crazy. Well, and, and even happened uh, 20 years ago in the Oklahoma city federal building bombing where really the, the bulk of the charges were, were state charges. They were state charges. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was some, uh, obviously death of federal officers in the building, but the primary charges were, uh, were state. Let's pause for a second 
So I can talk about Raycon wireless earbuds. By now, you've probably seen about a thousand gift guides for the holiday season. Gifts for moms, gifts for guys, gifts for your neighbor's cousin's dog. You could study all those gift guides and shop at 10 different places, or you could start your shopping at Raycon and get a gift everyone will use. Raycon wireless earbuds. Chances are, if you see me working out or just out for a walk, I'm wearing my Raycons. They're a game changer for anyone who listens to anything. Raycons give you amazing audio quality wherever you go, whether you use them to pump up, wind down to work or work out. They'd be useful for anyone on your list. Even better for you, they start at half the price of other premium audio brands. With their latest model, you get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. There's pure mode for podcast listening, blues and instrumentals. There's balanced mode for podcasts and rock and heavy metal. There's bass mode for hip hop, EDM and reggae. Raycons are available in five stylish colors. I've got red. So you can pick a perfect one for everyone on your list. With free shipping and returns, Gifting is easier than ever. The holidays are coming up faster than you think. Now is the time to knock out that gift list and avoid the last minute shipping scramble, especially because right now my listeners will get 15% off site wide with code HOLIDAY at buyraycon. That's R A Y C O N dot com slash Frank. Go to buyraycon.com slash Frank and use code holiday to get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Buyraycon.com slash Frank. And this episode is also brought to you by StoryWorth. If you're like me, you're always looking to give a gift that means something. A gift to loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship you share. That's why I'll be giving the gift of StoryWorth. It's an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It's a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like... What's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. This is a great gift for parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, because it'll be passed down for generations of grandkids and great-grandchildren. Reading the weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones no matter how near or far apart you are. You'll learn new things that'll connect you even more to that loved one. With StoryWorth, I'm giving those I love a most thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com frank. And save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash frank to save $10 on your first purchase. Now, let's get back to our guest. I want to go back now. We had led up to you becoming the the number two in the, in the FBI, yeah. r- running the daily operations of the FBI. And I, I want to, I, I, I say, I, I, for those who've read my book, uh, and this will be a shameless plug for the, for the book, of course, but, <laughs> and, and um, you need to, if you haven't, you need to read Andy's book as well. I think um, they make for interesting companion pieces perhaps, yes, but I, I say, I say in my book briefly that, I don't know the facts on what the IG was looking at um, with regard to your dismissal from the rolls, but I do know one thing, and I, I said this with with great confidence that because of my experience in the FBI, in uh, as chief inspector, as a unit chief in the Office of Professional Responsibility, as an executive who had to sit on the Senior Executive Service Disciplinary Board, the one thing I know for certain is that the way you were dismissed from the roles is unlike 
anything I've seen in terms of process protocol, due process. In fact, it's nothing like it. And so um, I, I, I sent you a brief congratulatory email mm-hmm. when the word came out that your legal action uh, recently resulted in a, uh, a, a decision to give you what you were due in terms of lost pension, et cetera. Walk us through the decision to file that legal action and then how you're processing the decision in your favor. Sure, sure. So let me start just very briefly talking about the underlying report, which, you know, I mean, my lawyers would be screaming at me right now if they knew I was doing this, but I, I think it's an important scene setter. So I was investigated by the DOJ Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, and his band of, of married men uh, and women for comments that I made essentially two interviews. So as deputy director, there was a leak issue that happened. And I asked the inspection, the the FBI inspection division to investigate it because it was a leak from one of my senior level meetings. And I thought it was really concerned. Concerning, I asked inspection to come in and, and investigate it. And so I was essentially the victim, right? In that investigation. And I was interviewed as the victim witness, whatever you want to call it, in that investigation. And then um, at a later interview, out of nowhere, and completely unrelated to what I had asked, what we were talking about, what I'd asked them to investigate, they took out this Wall Street Journal article that had run in October of 2016. And they said, do you, I don't can't remember how they phrased it, but basically like, do you know about this? Well, who, who authorized this Wall Street Journal article? They say, I told them that I didn't know. And I'm, I'm sure that's probably what I said to them. Uh, if I did, it was a mistake. I just didn't remember it at the time. It had been seven, eight months since I'd had any interaction with that. I now know years later, after documents have been revealed through FOIA actions, that they had essentially been put up by the inspector general to ask me that question. They'd been instructed to ask me that question. And at the time the investigator said, well, we really don't wanna do that because it wouldn't be proper. And he's the victim in this case that we're talking to him about. And to ask him questions as a potential subject is a totally different thing. We'd have to notice him that he's under investigation. And they said, yeah, yeah, don't do any of that. Just ask him the question. So I did not know this at the time, but I answered the question incorrectly. Later, when they gave me a draft of my signed sworn statement, I saw that that answer was in the signed sworn statement. And so I didn't sign it because I knew that that was not accurate. Weeks go by. I set up another meeting with them. I brought them in and I explained to them, this is wrong. We need to change this. Okay. So that was one of the exchanges that resulted in a finding of lack of candor by the IG. It's almost incomprehensible to me because when you do an interview of anyone, before the interview is finished, you know, you always say to them, hey, look, if you think of something different later, if you answered something wrong, you want to change an answer, just call us and we'll, you know, we'll change it for the record. It's fine. And that's essentially what happened here. So the same thing happens months later in July, uh, the IG discovered, I guess, the infamous text messages between Pete Strzok and Lisa Page. And they called me one day. I was, I was the acting director at the time. They said, something important we need you to come over here and look at. And by that point, I knew that I was part of the overall investigation of the Hillary Clinton email case, the IG's investigation of that case. And so I said, well, I'm not really comfortable coming over and answering questions because I don't have, I have an attorney, but he's out of town. And they said, no, 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 don't worry about that. This is just a, um, a totally different thing. This is very important. As acting director, you need to know about it. So come over. I said, okay, fine. So I went over and they proceeded to like grill me about all of Pete Strzok and Lisa Page's texts, which I had had no knowledge of, or, you know, they were not texts with me. So I didn't know what they were talking about. And in the course of that exchange, they asked about the same article and I gave them kind of a flippant answer of like, hey, I don't, I don't know what they were talking about. I don't know what Lisa was doing. I was not even in town when they had that particular text or something. So anyway, that ends up being considered another act of uh, lack of candor. In fact, same thing happened. Two days later, I called them back after spending the weekend kind of processing the enormity of the problems that we were going to have as a result of the exposure of these text messages between my, essentially my staff lawyer, Lisa Page, and Pete Strzok, who is one of the 
closest, most high-ranking investigators on both the Hillary Clinton case and the Russia investigation. You know, it's a terrible kind of damage assessment going on here. I spent a lot of time thinking about the questions they'd asked. And I was like, you know what? I think I had talked to, I, I said, I, I recall that I had told Mike Corton, who is the head of public affairs back in October, and Lisa Page to talk to the Wall Street Journal about this article. So I, call, I called the IG and said, hey, I think I got something wrong in our interview on Friday. I just want to let you know. I told Corton and Page to interact with this reporter. You should talk, follow up with them and find out how that went. And so despite that, despite having called them and corrected the record, they decided to consider that another uh, act of lack of candor. So that was their conclusion in their report. And that report was used as the basis to fire me in about eight or nine days so they handed the report over to FBI OPR. They put a ton of pressure on OPR to get it reviewed and come back with the re their recommendation, which of course would be termination. And uh, OPR did that. And then the Department of Justice essentially called Jeff Sessions back into the office on a Friday night on March 16th, because they were all desperate to fire me before I turned 50 on March 18th, which was, you know, the Saturday into Sunday morning. So that's how it went. I got fired yeah. basically 24 hours yeah. before I would have retired. I maintained to this day, have always maintained, I never affirmatively, intentionally misled anyone in those interviews or anyone else who I talked about after the fact. But nevertheless, that was, that was what they did. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I, I want to just briefly, you know, let my listeners know you, you can make your own decision here as to what Andy is sharing, but I'm going to tell you separately and independently, and maybe now for the second time, the, everything he's just described is exactly the opposite of how things work and are supposed to work in terms of dismissal of, of anyone. I don't care what level um, of person you're at, of uh, rank you're at. It's not the process. It's not how it works. And it it smells very badly. And if, if, if a process lacks credibility um, and veers off the, the charts in terms of how it's usually done, then you've got to suspect that there is some kind of undue influence in the process. And I, I just wanted to share that. I appreciate that, Frank, because I, I obviously feel the same way about it. I, look, I know having done this work for so many years, it is the process that that saves us, right? That's how we ensure that there's some consistency in the investigations and ultimately the justice that the, that the system meets out. And it's not perfect by any stretch, but boy, that's the best chance we have of getting yeah. it right. So well, let's, let's, anyway. let's go now to the decision to take some legal action and, yeah. and, and then tell me where you are when you find out, Hey, you won. Yeah. So I little, little diversion in that process shortly after I got fired about a month later, I found out that the department had referred the matter to the district of Columbia U S attorney's office. And that I was then being investigated for a crime and they investigated me for two years. And I went in and talked to them for like six hours one day and explained the entire thing again. I've, I have done that under oath. I can't even count how many times now. And we just, just steadfastly maintain, like there is, I did not commit a crime here. There's absolutely no evidence of a crime because nothing didn't happen. And was insistent that, you know, this should not go forward. Nevertheless, it took two years. They brought in a grand jury. The grand jury expired. They didn't get an indictment. And then they brought the grand jury back and asked them again to vote for it. And they didn't. So eventually in February of 2019, it was actually Valentine's Day. Awesome. Great. They called me and told me that they had just, that they had closed the criminal case and were taking no action. So that was already a very, very, happy day in my yeah, life. Yeah. Um, and then of course, uh, a little bit before that. So, um, that, I'm sorry, that was February of 2020, August of 2019. I filed the civil suit, really a, a tough decision. Like here I am having to like go after the organization that I, to this day, love. I absolutely to this day, think so highly of the FBI and the men and women in it. I am constantly recommending that people pursue careers with the Bureau because it's just such a special opportunity. But so it was a hard decision to make, but I really felt it was absolutely necessary to one, recover the things that had been unfairly taken from me, my, 
my pension, my healthcare benefits, and even just the accoutrements of retirement, like my, my ID and, you know, those things that you get when you retire as an SES official at the Bureau. And also to, by doing that to re restore my reputation, like this was done for improper political purposes, which in and of itself is a violation of my constitutional rights. So that was one of the claims in the lawsuit. And it was a total violation of all of the processes that are in place, all the guarantees that employees are entitled to, civil service employees are entitled to. And DOJ filed a very quick motion to dismiss. They lost resoundingly. The judge just basically said in his rejection of their motion, his denial of their motion, that you know, he kind of indicated what a dim view he took of their arguments. And immediately after that, there was an interest uh, to start some settlement discussions. I can't talk about those discussions in right. detail because right. it's confidential, yep. but I will say that can people ask me, do I feel vindicated? I mean, I absolutely do because everything I asked for in a complaint, I now got in the settlement. Wow. So that tells me pretty yeah. much yeah, yeah. Um, there was no reason to keep suing because I was able to accomplish, you know, exactly what I was trying to accomplish with the suit. And I'm, unbelievably grateful for the incredible legal work of my lawyers at Arnold and Porter, just the best. And they just did a great job. And, and now the whole thing is finally behind me. Well, just based on the, the response I saw on social media, much of America was rooting for you and was pleased and congratulated. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how, how important that has been to me and my family over the last four years. I mean, you know, one of the strange aspects of this whole tale is I get recognized like a lot and when I'm out grocery yeah. shopping or whatever I'm doing and people just come up and say the nicest things that they're thinking of us and that they support, you know, who we are and how I serve the country. And those kind words are, are really sustain you yeah. through a very dark period and kind of reminds you, you tend to focus on the negative and the horrible things that the, <laughs> the president right. is saying about you on Twitter yeah. and his friends are saying, yeah. um, there's a lot of people out there who are on your side who are just not as loud, but boy, when they do tell you, it's just incredibly heartwarming. Yeah. No one, when they sign up for the FBI thinks, uh, yeah, someday I'm going to be publicly oh uh, God, castigated no, and I, my family will be publicly derided by the president of the United States. And then yeah. I'll be walked out and dismissed, uh, you know, about 24 hours, 26 hours. You, know. you want to be unknown, yeah. right? You well, want to be like that, the most private but person. That, and, and even as you said, people recognizing you as, as they do me because of the power of television, you sure. know, at the supermarket and things. Uh, let's talk just for a minute about that unique phenomenon of working in relative obscurity for our entire careers, uh, a, a large part of mine in classified obscurity with regard to counterintelligence, and then being recognized in the store, but getting getting on television and being perceived because of us being a talking head on, on any particular network as some kind of political animal at this point. Tell, tell me what, what that's like and what you're experiencing. It is just, um, it's totally disorienting. And it's also kind of on a, on a visceral level, it's kind of offensive, right? Because you spend your entire career, politics, contrary to what I guess half the country thinks now, politics does not play a role in investigations at the FBI. And I defy anyone to prove me wrong. I know this from, you know, a long history in the organization, every single level an agent can serve doing all kinds of different work. It's just not a factor. It's oftentimes that we have the wrong idea about things, but it's not for political reasons. And so because my personal situation became what it did because of this perceived conflict that I had with Donald Trump. So now I am thought of as this like political partisan, which is ridiculous. That's not who I am. Yeah. And I try to maintain my objectivity and my, you know, I don't, I am, I am a commentator on CNN. It's work that I enjoy doing, but I don't go on CNN to talk about political results and who's going to win whatever race and who should, or who shouldn't. That's not my thing. I don't, that's not my expertise. I talk about investigations and national security and threats to this country and how investigators, how the FBI is looking at a missing person's case or, or whatever it might be. 
And I hope simply to shed some light on that obtuse investigative law enforcement intelligence process, because I think it's helpful for people to understand, you know, what's really going on. And so to have your opinions and your analysis dismissed as like political, like I, you know, it's just not, it's still frustrating. Um, but it, I guess it's where we live. Yeah, I, I find it, I find it disconcerting myself personally. And I, and for those who say, Hey, when did you become political? I say, look, I, I'm not political. I'm, I'm still the guy who spent a career identifying threats and addressing threats. And if you, per, right. if you perceive that as political, then that's on you, but, but it's not on that's me. That's right. Yeah. And I would, I would go one step further. So if I'm talking about a recording of the president browbeating the leader of another country to essentially extort a political gain from that country by using American aid funds and, you know, talking about the investigation of that activity. That's not, I'm not providing political commentary. I'm just telling you like, based on what this guy did, here's the potential criminal implications or impeachment implications, whatever that might be. I don't think there's any reason to like treat certain people with kid gloves just because they're in political positions. Um, I've never believed that. And, and that's one of the reasons why we ended up doing the investigations in 2016 that we did that, you know, caused such a controversy. Same thing with the FBI. I love the organization. I think the work that the FBI does every day is, is majestic and righteous. And thank, I thank God that there are people uh, in this country who are still doing that work, but sometimes they get it wrong. And being on TV means you have to have, you have to be honest enough to call out whoever it is, the president or the FBI or whoever else, when you think that they may have done it wrong or could have done it better. And so that's uncomfortable for me. I don't like to talk about the FBI in that way, but I feel like it's it's my obligation. It's my responsibility. Yeah. Un- understood. I would be remiss as a, as a last question, if we didn't touch briefly on, you know, we're talking about investigations and now let's, let's talk about investigations of the investigators. Let's talk about uh, John Durham and, <laughs> and uh, to the gr- to the degree you're comfortable telling us where, where you think Durham's coming from and where he might be going in terms of his look at the origins of the Russia inquiry. Well, where he might be going is a question I've never been able to answer. I mean, I, I think his entire effort was really born of what looked to me like politics, right? In an effort to kind of take another run at the same topic that the IG already looked at and, and with the hope of possibly delivering a result that the former president would have liked more. I, that's what it seemed like to me. And certainly that impression was encouraged by the comments of former AG Barr and Mr. Durham himself, who despite the fact that he has, you know, a sterling reputation has been around for a really long time has been, you know, involved in a number of high profile investigations in this one. I think he's done some things that are really questionable in terms of, you know, at the very beginning of his investigation, making derogatory comments about FBI officials and judgments that they made and, you know, opening the case, stuff like that. Like if that's not projecting a prejudgment of the investigation that you're supposed to be undertaking. I don't know what it is. So like those sorts of things, I really, I really don't understand. I, I watch the reporting as you and everyone else does. It seems like he has run down a lot of very different and disjointed alleys with this thing, with all the overseas trips with the attorney general. And then this focus on CIA people who really, from my experience, just were not relevant in the course of our opening of the case on, you know, investigating the Trump campaign. Um, so I, I don't really understand what he's trying to accomplish with any of that. doesn't seem like much of that has come to anything. The two indictments uh, recently of uh, Denchenko and Sussman, I think were remarkable, or I should say remarkably odd. Yeah. You know, now that he's finally put up his own indictments, I put the Kevin Kleinsmith thing aside because that was really an IG uh, issue. So that's, I don't really credit Durham with that, even right. though he did did the prosecution of Kleinsmith. Right. The Sussman indictment is basically the FBI standing in the role of victim. He's charged Sussman for lying to FBI investigators. It's a thousand and one charge that I can't imagine ever having been brought under any other circumstances. I can't imagine it. pitching a thousand and one case to an AUSA on the basis of one witness's the likely faulty memory and no documents and no proof. 
I mean, that's what that's what the Sussman case is in a nutshell. Yeah, it's terribly. It's, I, I share your opinion that it's terribly weak. The facts now. Now you don't get everything in a in no, an indictment, no. but the, the facts on its on their face are extremely weak, and and likely in the FBI would not be signed out by a squad supervisor as no a, as a valid charge. Um, but it's even more disturbing with regard to the way the narrative is being shaped in these in these charging documents, and uh, particularly yeah. that hey, this somehow destroys the dossier, Chris Steele dossier, and, and everything uh, is therefore destroyed, which is incredibly inaccurate assessment of the, the value of the, the Steele dossier. So it, it, it just makes me wonder where he's going. Yeah. And he, and, he, and he takes a really hard swing to get there, right? You got 25 pages of superfluous facts in that indictment that seem to serve no purpose other than to kind of bring in as many names of democratic, politically connected people as you possibly can. Like, that stuff doesn't go in an indictment. I mean, it's just, it's really, once again, I'm questioning, like, what is he trying to accomplish? And then, of course, we have the Denchenko indictment, which also is, when you separate out all these other details that are in there gratuitously that are unnecessary to the charge, he basically is charging Danchenko with lying to the FBI in the January interview. And his theory is that he believes that Danchenko got this information from other people like the PR executive or the other people that are mentioned. Like, and maybe he has proof of that. Maybe he has a witness who's going to stand up and testify to that. But it's also possible that Denchenko walks into court and says, no, I didn't get it from that person. I got it from this person over here. So very strange indictment. It just seems kind of desperate. And really, once again, it's saturated with all these like insinuations of democratic political skullduggery, none of which are really that relevant to the charge. So I just, I don't know what the guy's doing. Yeah, we, we, we live in a society where people will take whatever they want to take from, from these indictments. And mm-hmm. I think Merrick Garland has to let it run out lest he be accused of cutting off some valid avenue of investigation. I think that's right. He doesn't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, he does. But I I think politically, if he does anything to cut this even a day short, I think he opens himself up to a lot of unnecessary criticism. So he's probably just going to let it exhaust itself. God knows when that's going to be. Yeah, I know. Listen, Andy, I I not only want to thank you for taking time with us today for this podcast, but, but really for your career of public service to the nation and in particular, your entire family's sacrifice in the service of the nation. Thank you for doing that. Thank you, Frank. It's It's been my honor to do it. I love the podcast and I loved your book. And it's great to talk to an old friend yeah. is always the best. Yeah, I felt, but, yeah, um, I felt it. We got to do this sometime over a beer or a bourbon. Yeah, and- for sure. For sure. I will convey your thanks to my family as well. They Indeed. they got scarred through this process yeah. in a way that is just uh, obscene. Oh. And uh, they're incredibly strong. And I'm super proud of my kids that, that they managed to pull through it, you know, with flying colors. So we're, we're all good. Unsung heroes for sure. for sure. Our guest this episode has been Andrew McCabe, uh, former special agent, former acting director, now retired uh, former acting <laughs> director right. of the, of the FBI. Thanks for being with us, Andy. Thanks Frank. All right. Take care, man. You too. Thanks for joining us for this candid discussion with Andy McCabe. If you liked it, You'll like what we have in store for you right after the holidays. In fact, first up in January will be an in-depth discussion with Chuck Rosenberg. I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I will. Here's wishing all of you the very best of the holiday season. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.